Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high-performance, innovation and productivity. What more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off that shelf. And your host today is me, TC Gill, IT Labs Chief Talking Officer, and I'm speaking from London, UK. And in this episode, we're talking to a tech leader with an interesting journey, and thus a seasoned tech leader. Our guest, David, has now arrived at a company delivering a beautiful niche, saving businesses loads of their hard-earned profits. So let's not delay. Let's get David into the space to share his enlightening stories and knowledge. Welcome, David. Welcome to CTO Confessions Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Brilliant. So tell the audience, what do you do and who do you work for? I work at uh, Blue Dot. Blue Dot is a company that's a fintech company. Um, We've been designing and building systems around tax compliance. We have two products in particular that are out in the market today, the top Fortune 100 companies. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, I do my VAT for my company as well. And, you know, uh, whenever whenever that, that wonderful time of the year comes about. Um, yes. So it's fascinating to see how, how you know, you're solving a problem that many of us don't think is a problem, you know. But before we, before we do that, before we do that, I just want to jump into your journey up until this point. What's your journey been like to this tech, leader, tech leadership position that you're in now? Okay, so, so I don't know how far back you want to go on the journey. But like, if I, I go back very far, so for my bar mitzvah, my uncle gave me a computer, a programmable <laughs> TRS-80. So that was back a while ago. And um, from then I've been programming. So from age 12, 13, I've been programming. And, and I think being um, like technically involved at every stage is definitely part of my journey. Brilliant. So I grew up with a TRS-80 and then the Apple II was a major transformative event and what's where in the Apple and learning binary code, et cetera. Uh, my BA I did in the computer science at Yeshiva University. My master's I did in Bar Ilan University in geography. So that was um, more in the world of aerial photography and trying to determine uh, terrain forms, trees and not, not trees, et cetera, from aerial photographs. And then my doctorate I did in uh, Hebrew University at, um, in neural computation. It was the first year of the neural computation, the Center for Neural Computation at Hebrew University. Wow. Which this disciplinary center, they, they had neurophysiology, neuropsychology, neurobiology, and math, physics, and computers. And I was more on the engineering side of that one and less on the theoretical side, but that was a lot of fun. And that was back um, in the 90s. Yeah. That was the second wave of AI, I guess, it was before the second winter or third winter, whatever we, we call it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my, my doctoral thesis was on unsupervised learning. I did um, a, a prog. Uh, I designed an algorithm for, it's called an agglomerative method of unsupervised learning of non-stationary data. Be that as it may, what it means is, is that um, something everyone does today is kind of like zero-shot learning, how, how you learn with very little information. And yes. as information occur, occurs, you dynamically change your models immediately. So that was way back then. And then I started working immediately. So my part of my doctorate and my master's actually already, I had done a project with uh, the Volcani Institute, which is the Ministry of Agriculture's research arm, where I worked on sorting tomatoes. Wow. To, uh, things you eat, right? So quality sorting of tomatoes. And that led directly to my first job, which was 
um, algorithms in a company that did sorting of apples. So like the, the joke is I, I worked very hard to get a lot of very lucky opportunities come to me. Yes. When I finished my doctorate, I got a phone call from this company doing apples. I said, hey, we said, you know, we saw you did tomatoes. We're working on apples. Why don't you come help? <laughs> That's a conversation. I mean, just imagine that as an opening line on a phone yeah. call, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I spent very, a bit of time there, not long. And then my brother gave me a call and said, oh, I have a startup I'm doing. Why don't you join? It was online interactive virtual reality. Um, so it was a different type of compression algorithm, progressive compression. So if you're familiar with a like progressive JPEG, the idea that pictures get sharper as time goes on, right. we were doing something similar. We did a deal with Apple at the time with QuickTime VR, and that propelled the company to an acquisition. That company was acquired by um, companies actually founded by John Scully, who's famous in the industry for firing Steve Jobs, but he was also famous for um, <laughs> being the CEO of Apple and Pepsi-Cola before. Wow. But be that as it may, um, yeah, so from there, I rolled into another startup and then to another startup and to another startup. Uh, and th the theme at the moment was I founded companies with my brother and um, I would start as the first employee, the first engineer, and then build a team around it, et cetera. So I, I ended up writing code the first six months, you know, building out the prototypes, being building a team around that. The team got to a certain size. I would transition from VPRD to CTO at some point. Those companies were acquired. So the most successful company was, was iScoot. In iScoot, we, um, we, we built a connecting piece between Skype and telephones. So we did a deal with Hutchinson. And we launched in the UK. We had a very large number of phones. We built a physical phone together with them, the Skype phone, in addition to other things. And we also ended up launching across the States with uh, Verizon, T-Mobile, and AT&T, the first social network platform. Wow. So this is the days of uh, two and a half G, so no 3G phones, and we were supporting um, Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter across the states. Those were very successful projects in the sense that people use the product. It was a lot of fun to watch people wow. use the product to build some people use. And then that company got acquired by Qualcomm. And then I was in Qualcomm, I did other stuff. So again, the, the basic trajectory of first engineer, build a team, CPR and D, and then become a CTO is kind of where I ended up where I was. Until recently. So about, I don't know, I guess two, three, four years ago, I decided I would change the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I try and do something, you know, more meaningful than just uh, a social network application. So I, I went to, uh, to a friend who was working at Mobileye and I said, you know, I want to work autonomous vehicles, save lives. Sounds great. So I spent the year working at Mobileye and I was doing algorithms around, um, Mapping. I don't know if familiar you are with uh, autonomous vehicles. There are two core problems there. Right. So one problem is around um, sensing the vision. You know, what do you see? And the second problem is where are you? Right. So creating a high definition map. So now it's not enough to, to see something. You have to know if it corresponds. You, you, yeah, legally, it seems you need two sources of information before you make a decision. Can I go forward or not? Is that a stop sign or not? So autonomous vehicles have high definition maps within 10 centimeters. They know what to expect on the road. And then if that thing isn't there, they lift their hand up and say, I can't drive. Oh, wow. Building high definition maps as a science to itself, with an art in itself. So I was working on that division, not on the sensing division, which has the cameras and the light or whatever it could be today. Yeah, and, and that was a fun problem because it was unsupervised learning again. And I was not a VP R&D, I was not a CTO. I was just a researcher kind of in the realm of things. And 
And while the technology was kind of fun, I, I was missing some of the, the creative aspects of meeting the team. Mm. Anyway, I got a phone call and I shifted to where I am today. At the time, it was called Vatbox, uh, Blue Dot. And there, this is the first time I actually came into a company as a CTO from the outside. So I didn't find it. I wasn't one of the founders. I wasn't one of the people who built the technology. I was coming in late in the game. Uh, there was a team there and I had to integrate into that team. And that, that was a challenge in and of itself. And I'd say, you know, you talk about CTO confession. So here's a confession. Go that was it. a challenge that I probably didn't succeed at. Well, maybe I did because at the end of the day, we built a good platform. Yes. But to say that we built it on the old technology would be a misnomer. We, we kind of rebuilt the technology. If I had to do it again, I would have um, hastened the demise of the old and brought the new faster. Right. We spent a lot of time because we had a, a working product with customers. We needed to do slow migration. And that may have been a mistake. Maybe it should have been a little faster. Right. Okay. So that brings me to where I am today. Um, Blue Dot today has a bunch of engineering teams. There's a, a very solid VP R&D, Yoni Levy. And I'm the CTO where I drive more of um, the architecture and vision around, in particular, the AI strategy. Brilliant. And just to kind of bring it down down to kind of kind of clear sentence. I mean, what's the problem that you're solving in the market? So, okay. So if, if you think about how big companies work, not, not your average small company, you want to buy a pen, you buy a pen, you have your little pocket, you take out some money, you buy a pen, you work out later what to do. But when you're a company of a million employees and you have to track that, it becomes a problem. So what they used to do in the old days was they said, oh, fill out a purchase order. When I was at Qualcomm, this is what it was like, you know, even at NMS, you know, publicly traded companies have very organized bookkeeping. And they say, you want to buy something? No problem. Here are our vendors. Oh, you want to buy from Office Depot? We support that. From Staples? Uh, no, not today. No, you have to go to Office. And so they choose a vendor. And what do you want? And so the, the process of purchasing is already a process of what we call creating the report. So you're creating a transaction, right? I'm going to transact with another entity. I'm going to transfer money at some point, perhaps. And the result of that transaction needs to be reported to the government at some stage in some form or another, it needs to be tracked. So do you create the report before the transaction? That's how people used to work. They said, okay, I'll create a report. I know what I wanna buy, I know how I'm gonna buy it. I'm a little bit handcuffed, but that's okay because the world wasn't so complicated. <laughs> Today, the, the world a little bit uh, complicated is an understatement, but people are, are living in a very fluid environment. They're used to buying on the web. I go to Amazon, I buy a pen here, I buy a piece of paper there. I don't want to start to fill out forms before I buy. I don't even know what I'm going to buy before I buy. I'm on the I'm on some sort of interface. I admit I'm booking.com, I'm booking a hotel room. If I take time off, wait, go to fill out the form, come back to book, the price will already change. I yes. can't do that. I got to you know do my transaction. After the transaction, I'm going to send all that paperwork to the accounting department. They're going to resolve it. Mm. So until a few years ago, the accounting department got a boxes of paper, literally boxes and boxes of pieces of paper, and they had to sort through them and, and figure out what to do. And what people did in the past to kind of um, resolve transactions and understand what to report to the government was they did guesses. They said, okay, you know, there were a million transactions. I'll sample them. I wanted 1%. Okay, now look at that and I'll decide, okay, they look like they were viable and they're real. All good. Right. And the government said, okay, you tried. And then every now and then they would audit you. And that's the greatest fear of any normal company is to be audited. 
So the world changed a little bit and yes. and fluid and dynamic. And now you have all these expenses that are floating around. They need to be resolved and reported. And that's what we did. We, we solved that problem. So we resolved the transaction and we reported it. And what's the kind of typical saving that you're making for these kind of companies other than, other than, you know, uh, making the process easier. Well, again, so there, there are two things that are happening. So one is, um, I, I don't, I don't think I can say the numbers exactly, but, but you can kind of envision the scale. A company like Amazon is hundreds of millions of dollars in VAT expenses that, and, and I, I didn't believe it till I saw it. Some of these companies will say it's not worth it for us to recover that money. It's just not worth the effort. So I think it was one of these companies has a policy. When an employee has an expense, they must pay the employee back. They refund, you know, they reimburse the employee within three days. Done. Right. Do they care about the government's taxation issues? No, it's not. It's not worth the effort for them. So some of these companies were just having the money sit on the side and do nothing. Some of them were trying and they weren't as successful as they could have been, et cetera. There's that. But I, I think that the bigger issue is tax compliance. So our second product, as opposed to VAT, is just ensuring that you're not violating, in particular, um, employee benefits. Right. So you, you went to a, a conference. Wonderful. The company wants you to go to the conference. Great. You go to a hotel, but the conference is on Monday. So you go a day early, you land on Sunday. You have an extra night in the hotel. Company's going to pay for that. Great. But it's a benefit. So they have to pay the tax on that event. So what's going to happen in that case? Right. So there, there are a number of these cases where, which are very subtle and every country has its laws and you, yes. know, you can buy a bottle of wine up to 50 euro in France, but not 51, et cetera. So there's no end to them. Yes. And it's not a problem so much of savings as compliance. Yes. I, it's just fascinating. I'd love to get to a point where I have a company that I need your product. So just want to <laughs> put that out there. You know, I mean, that'd be fantastic. Of course, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> That's excellent. And I mean, this is a fascinating. Um, it's a really, really tight niche. I'm, I'm just really fascinated the fact that somebody found that niche and kind of filled it, or or how that came about. I, I find um, how these some of these companies are born. You know, right. So I, so I, I wasn't there when it was born. Um, you know, I speak to the founder often. Um, but when they looked at it, again, they saw a problem and, and they saw that it could be automated in the sense that the problem could be broken down into parts. So this is 10 years ago already. And they were looking at it and saying, you know, in order to, to file tax, again, it sounds so blase, oh, tax reports, who wants accounting? I mean, my grandfather was an accountant, wonderful. But, you know, where's the technology? So the answer is in the beginning, there wasn't much technology, it was just, how can we improve the process? How can we make it easier for the accountants to do their job? Yes. And they broke up the process into parts. And then when we looked at it deeper and we saw, well, we can take those parts. That's a very good beginning. And now we can leverage the domain knowledge that's been, you know, over the years grew within the company. And we can bring the full power of AI and machine learning to, to bear. Yes. And, and we've gotten to a situation now where um, you know, th there's a core problem, let's say in, in VAT, core problem is just figuring out how much was the receipt? When did the transaction occur? What country was it in? What currency was it in? Like there's some core basic parameters you need to answer. Mm. And we're automated that in a 95%, which means, right. And I can't begin to describe how complex a problem it really is. <laughs> right. Yeah. You think, you know, what's so hard? It's a piece of paper. You look at it, but you know, 70% or 60% of the piece of paper are really not hard at all. Easy to get to 80%. Was a real challenge and then from 80 on up you're, you're talking about either the 
it was fuzzy, the paper was at a bit hand, some of it's occluded, it's a bit, eh. or pieces of information are missing. You have a receipt, it doesn't have the currency, it just has a number, 25.72. What does that mean? So you have to kind of figure out, oh wait, I don't have the country, but I know that it was in an airport in Ontario, Canada. Okay, I, can, I guess it was Canadian uh, right. dollars. Yes. You have to start to make inferences and, and so on and so forth. And it gets very, very complicated. And there's a handwritten tip and, and do you include it and not include it? And there was a multiple VAT. England's a great example. The, the way VAT works in England with multiple VAT rates, you buy a bottle of beer, you're going to pay 20% on the bottle of beer. You have it with water. You're not going to be 2.5% on that maybe. Okay, but what happens if you bought Camden Ale? Camden Pale Ale is, is our favorite example right now. Right. So is that alcoholic or not alcoholic? So, so to be able to, to broaden your knowledge base so that you're not only looking at literally beer, but anything that could be beer and then et cetera. So, so it becomes a very sophisticated problem yes. because you need to not only extract information from the document. So there's a lot of NLP. We have about a hundred models working currently in some pipelines and things like that. And, and you have to extract all the core information from the document. And then, and this goes into what I was calling, uh, trying to know about the, the hierarchy of values and levels. Right. At the lowest level, you're looking at what's written on the piece of paper. It says 27.5. Got mm -hmm. it. Okay. Then you want to infer something above that. You know, what country was the transaction? Okay. Then you can make an, an inference on the, the currency. Okay. Then you have to figure out, wait a minute, was it a weekday? Because if it was a weekday, that's different than if it was a weekend. Oh, it was a weekend. You don't get back. Oh, we claim on a weekend. Then you have to, right? And, and it gets much more complicated. So you're parking. Did you park in a hotel <laughs> under the hotel where you're staying, right? You ate in a restaurant. Were you staying wow. at the hotel in the restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. So these are rules. And, and the level of sophistication as you go up this stack is, um, you know, there's yes. abstraction, the sophistications. And like I said, we have a fairly complex solution in place today that, that's working very well. So Brilliant. To the team. Yeah, it makes me think of my VAT uh, and working out my receipts as a as a blessing. Now I'm going to see that as a as a this is this is a walk in the park. But you're absolutely right. The tax laws are very different. They've got lots of intricacies. Uh, this is why I just hand it to my accountant and go deal with it. You know, kind of thing. But it's great that you're, you're creating technology to augment the process and make it smoother and more accurate as well. So that's fantastic. Um, I just want to step back now, uh, David, to your kind of leadership and your journey. You know, you kind of mentioned lots of lots of startups and, and stuff like that. You know, um, you're a serial starter upper. Uh, and what's what's the thing that's been driving? What's the passion that you've had in your space that's driven you along that way? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I prepared for this all, all week. I've been thinking about this question because I've heard heard you speak to other people. And I thought to myself, gee, what's the passion that drives me along the way? <laughs> And, and I don't think you're going to believe my answer. So I don't know how to phrase it. And like, I thought about it, I introduced myself to, I don't think you believe me. Like the cultural <laughs> gap is so large that I don't know. If it's gonna, but I think one of the things that are driving me is to look for the aesthetics in what we're doing. Oh, wow. So I, I learned this when I was doing patents and in and, and a patent, they use the term of the art. Like what is the art of your patent? You, you have a field of the art. And I went into this meeting with the patent authorities in DC and I'm sitting there and they go, so what field of art are we in? And it's like, wait a minute, I'm an artist. Like, and then it clicked. <laughs> and I really am. And I, and I like to think of the aesthetic beauty in what we're doing. So let's say you're doing code reviews mm. and you're looking at the code. The first thing to do is take a step back, look at the page. And is it pretty? Like you can look immediately know if it's pretty or not. 
So what's the aesthetic value of our architecture? You know, when we do a blue dot where we have all these models, it could be one big mishmash, it could be ugly, but if you can build it out and you get these diagrams and your lines don't cross and all of a sudden it looks good, that's really a beautiful moment. Yeah, when I used to be a coder back in the day, many years ago, I used to love the beauty of code. And I know exactly what you mean. You can look at a bit of code and go, that's nicely done, you know? Right. It has a beauty, it's described, it has a flow. Um, and uh, I used to use the word elegant, you know, elegant code, yes. elegant solutions. Not not just in its look, but the way it does the, the job and how it interacts. So yes. I get it. I totally get it, David. And right. And, and it's true at every level also. So when, like, as a manager, like when you, when you see the right person doing the right task, and you, it just feels right. And you, yeah. and you see the growth. Also, you're talking to somebody, their eyes light up, and you know they see it too. And that those, those moments are cherished. Wow. That's, this is kind of deep, deep tech kind of philosophy, isn't it? I, no, I'm happy with you. I, I, I used to feel this. When, and it's the same now, you know, with the teams that we work with. You know, it is about the elegance. It's delivering something that not only does the job now, but it has a, an ability to morph, right. change, and adapt, and, and, and to be read again by other people. So I'm totally with you. Now I'm going to ask you a tougher question. What keeps you up at night as a tech leader? Right. So I thought about that question too. And here, here's my answer. I'm going to do the long answer. Okay. So we talked earlier on before the recording about cycling. I'm, yes. I'm a cyclist. So I did something called the Everest Challenge. Are you familiar with the Everest Challenge? It's, it's, um, Everest is 8,849 no, 8, meters high. Wow. Okay. So the challenge is as follows. Choose any Strava segment you want in the world and go up and down it till you reach 8,849 meters. So I chose a section close to my house, which was three kilometers long, and it was only about 150 meters. And then I had to go up and down 59 times. I started at three in the morning, ended at 11 o'clock at night, and I went up and down the hill 59 times. Wow. And when I think about that event, it was not hard at all. It did not keep me up at night in that sense. It was not something I was worried about. I got up in the morning, I got on the bike, and I rode all day. I knew where I wanted to be. I knew I was in the right place, and I did it. You just wow. do things. Not knowing where you want to be, spending one minute in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's like you're driving on the highway, and you miss your turn off. I don't know what it's like in England, but in America, you can have this easy, and you're like, you missed your exit, and now you have to turn around, and now you're sitting in traffic. You're yes. going the wrong way, and you're in traffic? It's super painful. <laughs> yeah. So, so the thing that's keep me up at night, I, I guess, would be um, not knowing if I'm in the right place at the right time. Like, did I miss my turn off? Am I just in the wrong place? As long as I know I'm in the right place, I'm fine. Brilliant. And, and I thought about like the next stage in that that thought process is so how do I resolve it? Like, what can I do to to get back to bed and sleep? So, I, I think you know if I can ignore it, that's one solution. But um, if I can find external value to what I'm doing. So what happens is, is like, I'm saying, you know, I have a goal. My goal is to get up that hill 59 times. And then if I'm doing that, I'm okay. But if I'm not doing that, then I'm in pain because I'm, I'm not doing what I, what I should be doing. But if, if I can create value concurrently, mm. maybe not my primary goal, but I have some secondary goal. So I was thinking, for example, let's say you have the choice between fixing a bug or rewriting code. One of the like almost equivalent to being on the highway is you start to fix a bug and then you get trapped and you go down the rabbit hole and you're there and you're and the whole time you're thinking to yourself, I should just rewrite it. It'd be much faster. Why am I fixing it? Mm. And and that's a sort of anguish of of not knowing where you should be. Yeah. So if you get that problem and you say to yourself, but wait a minute, by rewriting the code, 
I have an opportunity to work with this new student. Or by fixing the bug, I have an opportunity to work with these tools. So by, by, by introducing other external values that it can be gained, then I can resolve some of the pain. Like I might still be on the wrong highway, I don't know, but at least I'm accomplishing something else. Yeah, I think that's a really good uh, takeaway for, for myself as well, because sometimes you do find, you know, you've kind of missed that opportunity, but hey, you've you got to keep going. So let's make use of it. Turn it to gold in some way, I exactly. guess. Right. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. So this brings me now, we're still on your kind of leadership style. What, what is your style? How do you roll as a leader? Right, so I think primarily I'm a technical person. I've always been technical and I, I enjoy doing code reviews, architecture reviews at, at all levels. So we don't have assembly code anymore in the company, but you know, everything above, I'm, I'm very happy to get deep into it and to lead by, by being in front, by you know, right. being down in, in the, in the, with, with the engineers working on the code. And I think the, the strength of a good architecture can compensate for a lot of other things along the way. So finding the right architecture depends again, a lot on, um, what part of the system we're working on, like the scale of the problem we're working on. So for example, if, if you're trying to resolve uh, a full stack problem, you're like, you're trying to do a backend and a front end, and you want to have a UI and you want to have, and, and that type of a system is a more monolithic type of a system. Like you have to really see all the pieces at the same time. You have to be that that's one type of world view and you have to be in it versus let's say you're dealing with um, a data science project and now you have databases that are producing data and then you have engineers that are creating models and then you have the models going into a pipeline and you have and that type of an architecture. So the way I, I would play my game is, you know, with the full stack guys, maybe I have to sit down and, and look at the code or maybe I have to try and get into nitty bits of, of the architecture and the objects being passed back and forth, et cetera. Sure. And with the data science guys, I want to get to the data architect and I want to talk to the system architecture guy and make sure that we have the pieces flowing in the right direction, the tools are available, et cetera. You made an interesting point there around getting the architecture right. Because if you get that right, it makes everything else just that little yes. bit easier. It's, there's a flow to how things exactly. happen. I remember right. working on a project for, uh, um, I don't think they'll mind me mentioning them, tele uh, Fujitsu Telecommunications. And the architecture we had there for some of our embedded systems was just brilliant. And literally we were able to duplicate entire systems very quickly. So yeah, architecture, architecture, architecture. And Getting the best out of your teams then. So you kind of mentioned that you kind of lead from the front. Any kind of tips around communication or getting alignment or where we're going and collaboration? Well, let me let me get ahead of us then. I, I think you're gonna ask me later on, wave the genie wand and yes. what, what would what would I want? Communication, communication, communication. I, I think the I don't know if it's um, you know, this generation. Next generation, last generation, I don't know, but communication is a challenge for many people. Yes. And, and being able to develop communication skills. So one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm doing actively is we, we have, so we're very, we're very agile and literally agile. We have very small teams and each team is, you know, has sprints and the team I'm working with most closely right now, we, we have weekly sprints. So we're pretty much focused every week wow. on deliverables, deliverables and we have our daily meetings, et cetera. And, Every week, everyone on the team prepares a PowerPoint presentation. So you have to be able to describe what you did. And throughout the week, it's maybe 20% of your time. I don't know how much of your time it is, but communication skills is, is fundamental. 
So why is that so fundamental? Well, once I see that someone's communicating, I, I can help them. Like they're, they're, they're stuck trying to describe this. Okay. Are they the wrong person to do that? Or are they not able to describe it because they don't understand it? Like, so forcing the communication channels is, um, is a good way to, to create a forcing mechanism that uh, the problems will surface. And then I can hopefully help the people help themselves as often. Fantastic. That's, that's quite an interesting take on that. I mean, one of the things that we've had mentioned quite a lot about communication is to over-communicate. Uh, there's been a lot of mentions mm -hmm. of people, especially in this remote world that we kind of live in, you know, there's, there's right. the, the kind of signals that we normally get in the office aren't there anymore, you know, seeing what's mm -hmm. on the whiteboard and, right. and David and TC having a conversation over in the corner, you know, right. people spotting that and maybe overhearing some key words. Um, so yeah, the, the communication thing is, is what binds the organization. It allows that kind of realignment and an ability to be able to help. Right. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's beyond just, you know, I, this is me going back to my, uh, my AI roots is, you know, if you had asked me, what's the greatest invention that God did with human, humankind communication, but, but what was the invention? The invention was that he limited communication, right? The, we don't have neural links. We don't have Vulcan mind melds. We don't have the ability to <laughs> communicate vast quantities of data immediately. Yes. That, that limit on that communication channel, this is like Shannon and information theory, like that limit on that communication channel, that's what enables us to learn. Yes. Because if we could just brain dump everything, you wouldn't have to learn it. It'd be easy. Yes. So that narrow bandwidth, the narrow channel of communication is forcing learning and to use that to your advantage. So it's not just, I need to communicate because I need you to, to mind melt with someone else in product or in sales or whatever it is. No, but by forcing you to communicate, you have to better describe your ideas in that narrow bandwidth channel. Yes. And I'm going to use that as a tool to be a better manager because I'm going to look at you and say, okay, this is how your brain's thinking. I get it. You know, you yes. tried three functions as opposed to one function. Why? Yes. That's right. It, it's, it, there's a few things there that kind of uh, come to mind. Uh, firstly, on the kind of sci-fi stuff, I, I, I would love somebody to invent the, the Vulcan mind meld because I would use that. <laughs> like there's no tomorrow. Um, but also, I, I was funny enough, I was thinking of Star Trek today. I don't know if uh, the audience and yourself remember the, uh, uh, the, the, the collective, the hive, um, the Borg. Uh, and they and they would simulate people into their into their thing, and they could constantly communicate with it. So it's basically a distributed system. There was no need right. to know everything. Everyone would tell you what you needed to know when you needed to know it. Um, right. But yeah, I, I, I love this idea of um, it, 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 what you've described there. Is kind of communication limitation has caused you know uh, this this kind of spectacular, amazing thing of having to learn and being able to communicate exactly. that learning, you know, uh, right. as well. And and and. and interestingly you know certain languages certain certain languages you know international mm -hmm. languages have certain board rights i've read about you know yes so they, they communicate more information in a smaller yes. amount of time but also the the other forms of communication is visual you know uh, yes. the way you present on on uh, on things so yeah i think that communicate communication 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 is is a really interesting one that's one of my key takeaways from this as well because um i, I think we forget about that how important that is you know a lot of problems come from that so thank you mm -hmm. for sharing that. So coming now on to organizational growth, you've been part of startups, you've, mm -hmm. you've had some spectacular successes. Any kind of tips on foundations for growth that you'd like to share with our audience? Well, I think first of all, things change dramatically now in the last uh, you know, generation is what, nine months? I don't know how long the generation is. But with, with the advent of data as a product, data as a, as a field to itself, 
So it's become much easier to scale up because successfully building products that are data products are naturally more scalable than the way we were in the past with uh, monolithic coding projects that needed to be. So, so that's easy. So definitely any opportunity you have to shift from programming to data, take it. It will help you grow. Like that's an easy one. And is that something we did personally in our, you know, in our teams here is as we were growing, we shifted away from, from programs to programming to data solutions. And I, you know, I take it to an extreme. It is, you know, we use Python, let's say Python pandits. Great. It's very simple. I'm looking at, you know, the artistic value of code. If I see code and it has a for loop, you know, conditional statements or loops, it's ugly. It shouldn't, it should be more functional, should be tables, should be able to do everything in an apply statement if you really have to, right? So catching out and separating out your data elements, that's core. And then having independent teams being both work in parallel on the data, you know, that helps growth, et cetera. Brilliant. If, if you live in a world without that ability, you're writing embedded code and you want to scale up, that's a, that's a whole different challenge. Yeah, right? I can hear you. Yeah, I can feel the pain of that. So David, as we come to the closing arc of our time together, I've got some really nice warm questions to ask you. What advice would you give to aspiring tech leaders based on your journey to maybe help them along or maybe find some shortcuts if there are any shortcuts? Okay, well, the first one is, you know, know who you are, right? So I'm a technical person. I liked coding since age 13. So even today, I like coding. And mm -hmm. I do code reviews and I use architecture as an excuse to get closer to the code. Know who you are and what your strengths are, right? And, and the worst thing to do is, of course, to be on the highway in the wrong direction. So <laughs> if you put yourself somewhere where it's not you yeah. and you're sitting there in a room and you're like, oh, I can do this. I can, you know, I can improve my skill set. I can be a better, mm, but that's not you. It'd be very painful and, yes. and it's harder to succeed. Not that you won't succeed. Maybe you'll succeed, but it will be different. Yeah. So know who you are is know your own strengths, number one. Yeah. And, and then if I had to like, you know, focus on a tool that I'm, I myself am working on recently, it's um, being able to listen. So there's a description I found in a book, a uh, definition in Fernando Flores. There's a book called On Listening. Something to the effect of listening is the art of creating a new descriptive space. So it's not enough to hear the words you're saying. It's not enough to actually you know, respond to them, but when we're in conversation, we create a new descriptive space. There's a new language that's going to emerge out of our conversation. Being able to listen to the point where we can create that new descriptive space, that's an art that I'm, I'm constantly working on over the last umpteen years, and I'll probably continue working on. Yes. And being able to listen is a very powerful tool. So are there any books that have helped you along your journey of tech leadership? Anything that's been, uh, you know, created gateway moments where you went in a particular direction or particular way of thinking? Okay, well, here's one. <laughs> so in the world of, uh, of fantasy and fiction, there's a number of authors I really enjoy. So one of them is Patricia McKillop. This is going to date me. So I don't know how, how I don't know how, how old you think I am, but now you know, I think I'm older. <laughs> I had a Star Trek reference. So um, Patricia McKillop has a series of she numerous, numerous books. One of them is called Real Master of Head, the trilogy. And one of the games she plays is naming. It's, it's the name she gives her characters and, and the power of her name. And, and you know, when you think about coding, you know, there are only two hard things in software engineering. You know, what names to give the variables and, and caching, something like that. Like that's, but it's a real thing because when you name something, you give it its power 
and, and it means you really understand it fully. Oh. And if you look at code and, or whatever, any project, and you look at an architecture side, you look at the names of it, and they don't make sense, you know the person doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. It didn't happen. So, so naming is a powerful thing that I actually learned from her. And if, if I'm already on, on books with names, there's a book called um, The Name of the Wind, which is a fantastic book. It's just a great read because it's a work of art. Wow. Um, he has two books. The first one's called Name of the Wind. The second one is called A Wise Man Fears. It's phenomenal writing. Just, you'd really enjoy them just in terms of the, the way he, he tells a story. But he also plays with the power of, of names. Wow. Is it, something. I, I, yeah, again, I mean, that's a, that's a really nice mention there about the way you name stuff, because it kind of gives you a, an insight into what's going on in somebody's mind, you know? Yes. They, do they really understand? And just, just so that the audience know, and you know, David, I used to love naming my variables. They used to have, I used to be very verbose <laughs> in my naming, you know? So it was very clear what was happening. You could almost kind of read the sentence and go, yes. yeah, I know exactly what's going on there, you know? Yeah. I, I, and not, to be honest, putting my hands up, I needed that as well. Because whenever I looked at my code, <laughs> I, used yes. to, I used to forget, oh, did I write this, you know? Um, yeah. And so now I'm going to pretend to be that tech genie that we mentioned yeah, earlier on. Okay? Yeah. So I'm going to offer you a wish, David, for your leadership, for your industry, uh, for, for the work you do, for, you know, as, as yes. a tech leader. What would you wish for, sir? That, that we could all see the beauty in what we do. You know, that's, that's really it. It, it. It's such a beautiful world out there, and, and we're contributing to that beauty. And when you can see it and you can just enjoy it, it's just a, it is a work of art. And I, and I think as tech people, we, we undervalue the art that we create. Yes. There's so much art in the work we do. Yeah. I'm going to make that come true because that is, I'm holding my hands together with absolute respect to that comment because that is really beautiful, you know, and it's a reminder to me and to many of the people I work with as well to, to really see the, see, you know, what we're creating. We're creators, you know, we are creators yes. of our worlds. So. And, and artists. Yes. And you know, there's, um, you mentioned books that I read that were very influential. So Umberto Eco is very influential. He has a, a series of articles called On Information, uh, fantastic essays where he describes his, his take on information theory as a writer and as a, as a communicator. One of the things he talks about in that book is the frustration an artist has, how a true creator and a true artist, they're, they're always a step ahead of society. And then they have no way of communicating with anyone else because society can only communicate in words and languages it knows. Mm. And they had to get told over time. And in the minute society knows something, well, then it's not new at that point. Everyone knows it. So that, that moment when you're an artist, you've created something and it could be like just a better architecture or it could be a bug fix or it could be the right name for a variable. And you're sitting there and you go, wow. And then you want to communicate that to somebody else. It's very hard to figure out how to communicate that moment where you see that beauty so mr genie yes that we could see and I'll, communicate that beauty i'll make it so thank you and so as we come to the final full stop of the podcast is there any other key takeaway that you'd like to leave our men and women tech leaders out there as a parting gift well i i think this idea of of determining the appropriate scale for a problem is is not as intuitive as it may or may not sound and, and it's throughout life, you know, if, if we have a habit of um, flattening down society and flattening down our problems, and a couple of things happen when you do that, you start to subsume all problems together and, and you get these 
dependencies that really don't exist. And you say, well, in order to get my cup of coffee, I need milk, but the milk is at the supermarket. And if I have to get in the car, but wait, I have to drive. And if I have to drive, I have to wait for light. And then how am I ever going to drink my morning coffee? I have to do all these steps. It's never going to work. Mm. Right. And, and by, by building up the hierarchies and saying, okay, wait, there are different problems here. Now, some problems are about me. How am I going to get up in the morning and find the kitchen? Problem number one, I'll turn the lights on. Maybe I'll find it. Okay. Problem number two, how is society going to build roads that cars can drive on it and then I can find a store? That's a different type of problem. Yes. And they're not dependent on each other. Break them out in a different scale. And I'm going to make sure that I live in a society that has roads and I'm going to make sure that I can get to my kitchen. Like those are two separate problems. So, yeah. so trying to define the different scale of the problems you're working at, you know, you're building a technology, you're building a team. You build, do you need a, a thousand person team, 100 person team? Do you need the databases? Do you need understand the scale of the problems you're working on and yes. then make sure you bring to bear the tools that are appropriate for that scale of the problem. Brilliant. That's a great note to finish on, David. Thank you for your time. It's been wonderful having you on CTO Confession, sir. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was a wonderful conversation on and offline. I wish I could share some of the conversations we had out of the podcast space. I came away with so many great insights, so thank you for that, David. So from what was recorded and shared here, what were your key takeaways? These were mine. My first key takeaway was about the concept of forcing communication. Well, forcing is probably too strong a word. That could be misconstrued, but you get the point. Anyway, I love the idea of getting team members to present what they have delivered, a kind of show and tell to celebrate work achieved, to create clarity around the work delivered to the rest of the team and allow team members and leaders to see if the work is understood and aligned as they see it from the bigger picture. Of course, this is done in retrospectives, but creating more formal documentation, actual documentation out of what's been delivered, I think has some great value for the team as a whole and can be used in many, many ways. Another great key takeaway on communication was the anthropological view that David shared. He's right, it's one, if not the greatest gifts that has been bestowed on our species. But also adding to this cutting edge of a gift, it's limitations, thus requiring us and evolving us to have to learn. I thought this was a really nice thought-provoking take on communication. Loved it. My third and final key takeaway is David's wish to the tech genie. And I will summarise his own words. That we can all see the beauty in what we do. It's such a beautiful world out there and we're contributing to that beauty in the work that we do. And his wish to us that we can see it and we can enjoy it. It's just like a work of art. And I think tech people, we all undervalue the art that we create. There is much art in the work that we do. There you go, techies out there. Feast on that. Great words, great wish. So thank you, David. What a great set of takeaways. And there were more that I couldn't quite fit in. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and well done to Blue Dot team for delivering such a great niche set of products that take the chill out of processing and handling tax and VAT in particular and retaining those hard earned profits for companies. Thank you again, David, and may the force continue to be strong in you, sir. And finally, remember to subscribe to CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter where you get regular tech articles and invites to the IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, nurture and support a community of tech leaders. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs services, 
including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like Tech Leader's favourite off-the-shelf service, providing agility, high-performing teams off that shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. Well, that's all, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening, wherever you are in the world, from all of us here at IT Labs. Live long, live well and prosper. Until we meet again on the next CTO Confessions podcast.